Well, good evening. We're glad that you're here tonight. Welcome to the study of the Gospel of John as we continue uh, chapter by chapter through looking at our study entitled Portrait of Jesus, a picture of our Lord based primarily on the things that he said rather than the things that he did. So we're glad that you're here. I hope you have your Bible or your device with you tonight. Those joining us by live stream, grab your Bible or your device. We're going to read a lot of verses tonight. Chapters 14 and 15, both because they go together. And I'll explain about that in just a moment. So I hope that you're ready to go to read God's Word. And I'll stop as I go through reading through it and kind of explain some things uh, like we normally do. But we'll be in chapters 14 and 15 of the Gospel of John tonight. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, it is good to be your people tonight. It's good to be believers in Christ. And we're going to look, Father, at this passage tonight that gives us insight into being believers in what you expect and what you promise to us as your followers. God, thank you for everyone who's here. I just pray your blessings upon them. I pray, Lord, the blessings upon those who are joining us by live stream as well, that God, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher tonight. You'd show us exactly what you want us to know from your word. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, just to give you a quick update as to where we're going, we will be meeting again next Wednesday night, and we'll look at John chapter 16 next Wednesday night. And then the next two Wednesdays after that, December 22 and 29, we'll not be meeting. Offices will be closed. But then following that, January the 5th, which is the first uh, Wednesday in January, we'll pick back up again. We will be here on January the 5th. So we will be here next Wednesday night, then miss two Wednesdays, and then we're back on January the 5th. And then February 2nd will be whenever we wrap up our John study. And so starting the following Wednesday on February the 9th is when we'll start looking at the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, looking at the Revelation. I think that you'll find that to be interesting. So that's going to start on February the 9th, and we'll be wrapping up John by the time before we get there on February the 2nd. All right, let's pick back up where we were. John chapter 14. The end for Jesus has now begun. He's had the triumphal entry, and, and the last few chapters, the Gospel of John, talk about the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, one half of John's Gospel covers only one week of Jesus' life. So, there's a lot more to Jesus' life that's not recorded. We don't know what he was like as a boy. We don't know what many other weeks were like. We know what one week is like. The Gospel of Mark records another week earlier in the ministry of Jesus. So if you put it all together, we really only have a few months out of his entire life. So there's a lot there. And so John is showing us um, the last week of Jesus' life because Jesus taught the disciples some important things. Remember now, in John 13, he had just showed the disciples the way of greatness, the way to be leaders, and that was to be servants. You remember Jesus washed their feet. You remember that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and, and, and he had just told them, one of you is going to betray me, and he just told them, I'm going to die. And so their head has got to be spinning around, thinking, Messiahs don't die and at least in the Jewish concept, they rule. They didn't die. And who's going to betray him? And, and so many things he said they just didn't really get. And so he begins chapter 14, verse 1, like this. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So we begin with letter A on your outline. I am the way, the truth, and the life from the first 14 verses. So they're, they're troubled. They're wondering about all of this. And Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. The word trouble there means to, to agitate back and forth like a washing machine that goes back and forth. That's the word picture here. Don't, don't always be going back and forth worried about everything. Maybe some of you that way tonight. Believe in God, he said. Believe also in me. So it takes more than just believing in God. A lot of people believe in God. Doesn't mean they're believers. Doesn't mean they're saved. The devil believes in God. But it takes more than that. You must believe in Jesus. It's an imperative, the word believe. In other words, a command. Believe in me as you believe in God. So many times you hear people talking about God, they just don't talk much about Jesus. You have to believe in both. To be a, a Christian, believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Now, here's what I find interesting in the two chapters we're going to look at tonight. There is an interplay in both of these chapters between public and private. Jesus had spoke publicly, now he's speaking privately. And there's an interplay between you, Jesus said, and me. After you're gone and after I'm gone. And here's a summary. Jesus said, believers, after you're gone from this earth, you'll be fine. And believers, after I'm gone from this earth, you'll be fine. And that's exactly what he's saying in these two chapters. So the first portion he's talking about after he's gone and we go to heaven to join him. In, in, in my father's house are many rooms or mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I shared whenever I preached on this passage some months ago that the word place there literally means city limits. It's the Greek word topos. It's a marked off boundary as, as, as Garland here has city limits as all the different communities around here have city limits. You see the sign. That's where you start marking where the city begins. That is the topos. And so here he's telling you, I'm going to prepare a place that has city limits for you. So heaven is not just a state of mind or not just something that you think you're experiencing. In fact, I saw where recently modern science now believes there's no such thing as heaven. It's just that your brain makes you think there's, you're, you're experiencing things after you die. Well, Jesus said, no, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It doesn't just you know, exist in your mind. It exists like on a map. A place you can go, a place you can dwell in. And that's what he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Basically talking about his return, his second coming. And you know the way where I'm going, verse 4. And so Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. He did not say, I will show you the way. 
He said, I am the way. He didn't say, I will teach you truth. He said, I am truth. And he didn't say, I can give you life. He said, I am the life. And so everything we're looking for, folks, is embodied in Jesus. Way, truth, life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I've said this many times on Sundays in different, different times. We live in a culture that believes you can come to Jesus or come to God in many ways. You can't. It's only through Jesus. And all the other ways are wrong. It's an exclusive claim. Yes, it is. But it's truth that you must come to God through Jesus or you'll never get to him at all. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So the disciples kind of scratched their head going, wait, wait, wait a minute. Nobody's ever seen God. What do you mean from now on we've seen the father? Because remember in the Old Testament, Jews thought if you ever saw God physically with your eyes, you'd die on the spot. You couldn't handle it. And so the disciples are going, wait, wait a minute. You, you told us that we've now seen you and we've seen you. We've seen the Father. And so Philip couldn't stand it anymore. He had to ask a question, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. We've not seen God with our eyes. Where is he? And we'll be content. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So what Jesus saying was, I am God in the flesh before you. When you see me, you're looking at God. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus, Jesus said, you can believe me by faith or you can just look at what I've done. Both of them point to the fact that Father God's working through me when you see me. You've seen God. Verse 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will I do. Or than these he, do, he will do because I am going to the Father. Now, hold on a second. Is he saying that whoever believes in Jesus will do greater works than Jesus? Have you been doing those? Healed anybody lately? Fed 5,000 lately? How in the world can you and I do greater works than Jesus? Well, he's not talking about, he's talking about effect or scope here. So in other words, he ministered for three years. When the Holy Spirit fills you and you do his work, you do it for more than three years. Some of you have been serving for 50 years or more. You've done greater works, longer works. And that's what he said would happen. 
Then verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, time out for a second. Hold on. Is he talking about name it and claim it? Is he saying anything that you want, all you have to do is add that little tag in Jesus' name and he'll do it? Not exactly. You see, there's more to praying in the name of Jesus than adding that little tag at the end. We're really good about adding the tag at the end because we know we're supposed to. Oh, oh in, in Jesus' name I pray. And if somebody doesn't say that, we kind of go, oh, they didn't pray in Jesus' name. It's not the tag. It's the content. Whenever you pray for things that, that are in accordance with what Jesus was all about, he'll do it. Whenever you have the heart of Christ and you're asking for those things that he asked for, that's praying in Jesus' name. That's living in Jesus' name. And so it's not just say, Lord, I want a new job. And I pray in Jesus' name. It's praying in accordance with what God wants for you and where he wants you to be. Sometimes we want something so badly and we'll say, oh, Lord, I, I'm going to pray in Jesus' name. And I'm going to, I know this is going to glorify you. Well, it may not glorify him. It may glorify him just the opposite of what you pray for. So it's not the tag ending. It's praying in accordance with the will of the Father for what Jesus wants to accomplish in your life. Pray in accordance with what he prayed for. And he said, I will do it. Go to letter B on your outline. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, here's something interesting, folks. We are now to chapter 14, verse 15. And for the very first time, Jesus mentions how much you love him. Let me say that again. For 14 chapters, he never mentioned about showing how much you love him. And finally, he does in chapter 14. Now, you and I in church, we oh, Jesus, I love you. I want to show you how much I love you. You know what he was more interested in how much saying how much you love him? Keeping his commandments. He talked a lot about that. But for the very first time now, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do what I say. And so the converse of that is a lack of love for Jesus leads to a lack of obedience to his teachings. So, tonight, if we say, Jesus, I love you, but we're unwilling to forgive somebody, we really don't love him because we're not obeying his teachings whenever he said forgive. And so, we have to look at his commands carefully to see, do we really love him? Love's not a feeling. It's not a, this mushy feeling, oh, I feel so emotionally that I hear a worship song, and I just feel so good, so close to Jesus. That's not love. According to Jesus, it's keeping his commandments. And so that's how we love him, by the things we do, not the things that we say. I had a seminary professor years ago that used to say, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you come back down. And that's exactly what he's looking for, straight walking, not high jumping 
to get closer to the Lord. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you, these next two words, another helper to be with you forever. Who's he talking about? Holy Spirit, absolutely. Why would he say another? Isn't there only one Holy Spirit? Why would he say another? In the Greek, it's the word that it means another of the same kind. So in other words, all three persons of the Trinity are going to be helping you and helping me when Jesus left. Tonight, you have, as a believer in Jesus, you have the power and strength of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit all inside of you. That's a lot of power. And so he uses another of the same kind. In other words, Jesus said, I'm here, but whenever I leave, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he uses the word parakaleos. In Greek, which para means alongside of like parallel. And kaleos is the form of kaleo means to call out. So the Holy Spirit means call out one to come alongside of you. So Jesus is going back to heaven and says, Holy Spirit, you come and be with them. And the Holy Spirit comes and is right by your side as if Jesus had never left. I remember as a boy, I used to think, man, I wish I'd lived back when Jesus lived. It had been, been so much easier to follow him and men to see him do all these things. I, I wish I lived 2,000 years earlier. But Jesus said, you're better off for living now. Because when the helper comes, he's going to help you even more because he's going to be with you 24-7. Jesus could only be there three years and he's gone. Holy Spirit will be with you, he says, verse 16, forever. Now, that was revolutionary in the, um, in, to, the, to the disciples as they heard it because all, everything in the Old Testament, when the Spirit comes, is there temporarily. Holy Spirit came on people in the Old Testament for a short season, empowered them to do a work, and left. Came on them a short season, didn't accomplish the task, and left. And that's all that the Jews knew. Holy Spirit comes for a moment, empowers me, and then he's gone. And now Jesus is talking about a spirit who's going to come and be with me forever, 24-7. And they're going, whoa, we don't quite get this. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth, Jesus said, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus now switches the analogy to a parent and a child. I will come to you. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. So he's not the one that shouts amen, not the one that says, oh, Jesus, I love you. It's the one who does what Jesus asks us to do and calls us to do. He loves me, verse 21, will be loved to my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now they have another question, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, 
How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Now, here's what he was saying. Put yourself in the mind of a, of a first century Jew. You've been told your whole life and your family has heard for generations that one day the Messiah is going to come. And when the Messiah comes, he is going to rule in a military way. He's going to be more powerful. He's going to overthrow nations. And he's going to rule the world. And the Jews will rule the world. And now you're talking to someone that you believe to be that Messiah. And he tells you, I'm manifesting myself to you, but not to everybody. And they're going, how does that work? I mean, if you're the Messiah to overthrow nations and rule the world, doesn't the world have to see you? And Jesus answered, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home, plural, our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then verse 25, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And look at verse 26. Muslims believe verse 26 is talking about Muhammad. They believe Muhammad is the helper, not the Holy Spirit, Muhammad. So verse 26, they believe Muhammad is the one sent by the Father after Jesus to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that Jesus said to us. So they think Muhammad is a fuller prophet than Jesus. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's twice he's told them that. Neither let it be afraid. Verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Let me read that phrase again. For the Father is greater than I. So the Mormons are right, right? The Jehovah Witnesses are correct, right? He says it right there. Father's greater than me. Whereas we believe they're one and the same. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, they believe the Father's greater than the Son. But didn't Jesus just say he's greater than I? Then what was he talking about? He was talking about the glory He's not talking in an ontological sense of being, that his being's greater than my being. He's talking about the glory. That's the context of the whole passage. His glory is greater than mine because I'm a human right now. I gave all of that up according to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I gave everything of heaven up so I could come down to become one of you. I gave up that glory so for right now, he's got more glory than I do. I'm a human that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about in an ontological way of himself and his being. Verse 29, and now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. The authorities were coming to arrest him, but Jesus is saying they really didn't 
you to take my life. I, I gave it. The ruler of this world has no claim on me. Verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. That's chapter 14. Let's move to chapter 15. We're going through a little quickly tonight, but trying to get both of them together in the same context. Let's go to chapter 15, letter C on your outline. I am the true vine, verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So here's the picture, the analogy. All the way through the Old Testament, Israel is called a vine. God's luxurious vine. It's mentioned in Psalms. It's mentioned in Isaiah. It's mentioned in Jeremiah. It's mentioned in Ezekiel. It's mentioned in Hosea. Sometimes in the context of judgment, I'm going to destroy the vine because of what they have become. But vine is an image that the Jews would know very readily that Jesus was talking about them. And so now he uses that same analogy for these followers. You are, uh, the, or rather, I am the, the vine and you are the branches my father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser is the one who takes care of the vine. So that's God. God is the one who takes care of his people. Verse 2. Every branch, we're the branches, in me, that's 16 times in the Gospel of John, he uses the phrase in me, it means being saved. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, let me stop there for a second. There's some people that had a problem with this verse. It sounds like once you are truly saved, if you stop bearing fruit, you're lost. Well, it sounds, doesn't it? I mean, he says here, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, the word take away there is the Greek word aero, A-I-R-O. It literally means to lift up. You remember whenever P, uh, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and Peter said, you're not washing my feet. And the Bible said he lifted up his feet. It's the Greek word aero, A-I-R-O. It means to lift up. And so he's not talking here about losing your salvation. He's not talking about taking the branches away and burning them. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And, and whenever you are uh, vine dressers, you lift them up sometimes to get them off the ground so they can grow better, especially with grapes. And so he, he's getting them up so they can grow better. And then he also says, I prune those that they'll bear more fruit. I'm not much of a horticulturalist, but I, I do know that pruning is getting all the dead wood off the branches so you can have more fruit. Because sometimes the dead wood hinders the fruit. And sometimes the dead wood in your life hinders a lot of fruit. And maybe that's why God needs to do pruning of you and of me to get the dead wood out so the good fruit can grow. And so he says, those branches, I either pick them up so they can grow better. I get the dead wood. I just want you to bear fruit. It's what you're here for. 
Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. What does it mean they're clean? He just washed their feet, remember? Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So here's the, the picture Jesus gives. Imagine a vine, let's say a grapevine. You're not going to have grapes growing that are not connected to the vine. You don't see one branch over by itself, totally by itself, with a bunch of grapes on it. You don't. They have to be plugged into the vine for, for nutrients and, and for nutrition. And, and that's where the life comes from. And he says the same thing to us. If you're ever going to bear fruit, now you can be busy, but not bear fruit. If, but you're ever going to bear fruit... You have to be connected to Jesus. You can come to church without being connected to Jesus. You can teach Sunday school without being connected to Jesus. You can work at a friendship house without being connected to Jesus. You can serve on a committee without being connected to Jesus. You can be busy. But if you're going to bear fruit, if you're going to have things come out of your life that look like Christ, you can't do it apart from Jesus. You must abide in the vine. What does the word abide mean? It's the word meno, M-E-N-O in Greek. And it was a picture of somebody taking a journey, you're a sojourner, you're traveling, and you stop because you find some place you like, and you stay there. Simple, isn't it? So that's what you have to do with Christ. Now on your journey through life, you have found the Messiah Stop and stay there with him. Don't go on without him. Don't go this direction, that direction. Abide means to remain where you are in Christ. Some of you may be there. Some of you may not be there. Some of you may not be abiding anymore. You've left. So abide in me, he says, and that's the key. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say a little bit. He said nothing. He didn't say you'll be a little effective. He said nothing. Apart from Jesus, folks, we can't do anything. Uh, a few semesters ago, I wrote a, a, a course for master's level course at DBU uh, in systematic theology, and I'd used all different sources to kind of come together and, and to write the course. And, and one of the sources, the main sources that I used was from an old theological professor at Dallas Theological Seminary years and years ago, passed away a number of years ago, named Lewis Sperry Schaefer. And in his work called Systematic Theology, he tells us 33 things that happen whenever somebody gets saved. All takes it straight from Scripture. 33 things that happen to you from Scripture when you get saved. And after he lists the 33, he says this, and every one of them are invisible. Can't see them. And the only thing visible is fruit. So, Whenever you're saved and those 33 things happen, a transformation that takes place where fruit comes out and people can see a difference. But if the fruit's not there, you look lost because the rest of them are invisible. 
Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Boy, that sounds like hell, doesn't it? I mean, usually fire is mentioning judgment every time you read it in Scripture. But as you use the grape analogy, grape, the wood from grapevines are not good for anything except fruit bearing, right? You can't burn them for firewood or they're not strong enough to use in any other way. I guess the only thing you can use grape vines for would be bearing fruit. They're just no good. So if they don't bear fruit, they're useless. And so we just toss them in the fire. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's the second time he said that. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So how you prove you're a Christian is not by going to church. It's by bearing fruit. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Folks, God wants you to have joy tonight. A lot of you don't have it. Some of you do. It's God's will that you do have it. In fact, he said, that's the reason, one of the reasons I've spoken to you is that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I think sometimes we don't think a lack of joy is a sin. We just have good days, bad days, joyful days, unjoyful days. Sometimes joy is determined by our circumstances. Well, I'm sad today because I'm not with my loved one, or I'm sad because of this. But, but joy is different than happiness, as we've talked about before. Joy is what Jesus gives you deep down. And, and Jesus wants so much for you to experience joy. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Obviously, Jesus is about to do that. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Now, back in biblical days, servants and slaves had no rights. The master did not owe the slave an explanation as to what he's doing. He gives him an order. He doesn't tell him why. His job was to go do it. And we're servants of Christ. But Jesus went one step further now with his disciples. He says, I'm not calling you servants anymore. Now I'm calling you friends. The servant has no explanation as to what I'm doing, but... You're a friend, so I'm explaining to you some things I'm doing. And you'll understand it. You'll get it after the resurrection. But I'm telling you these things because now you're a friend. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Why would Jesus say that? Ah, oh, Calvinism, right? No, 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 no. He said it because in biblical days, the students 
chose the rabbis. They would, they would hear a rabbi teach and they would think, that's the rabbi I want to follow. So whoever it was, Rabbi Ben Hillel or whoever it was, he was the most famous one. That's who they would follow. They would hear and they would go follow. And so Jesus is saying, wait a minute, you didn't choose to follow me. I chose you. Verse 7, uh, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should also abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's three times he said that. Verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let me stop there just for a moment, then we'll wrap up the last section. If you notice the progression, Jesus went from, I love you, people. I love you, my children. To, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. To, you need to love each other. After pastoring Baptist churches for as long as I have, we're, we're pretty good with this one. We love God. Oh, we love him. He's awesome. And we're okay with keeping his commandments. For the most part, have some maybe that we don't like as well, you know, tithing and I don't know. But I'm, well, for the most part, I do. But loving one another gets a little harder. But it's as much of a command from God to us. It's the first one. As I mentioned several times, I think we're more divided today than we've been any time since I've been pastoring churches. Not our church in particular. I'm talking about Christianity in general. Because in every church, man, you've got all of these, you know, vaccine, non-vaccine, mask, no mask, and Republican, Democrat. And you've got all of these in, in all these churches, which has kept us so, so divided. And, and we've gotten to the reaching the point where if you don't agree with what I agree, with what I believe, I just don't like you at all. And Jesus said, I'm commanding you, I'm commanding you, you love each other. So it's probably a command we, we need to hear as much in our day than any command he's given to us. Got a few minutes left. Let's look at the last section. Letter D on your outline, the hatred of the world, verses 18 to 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Why does this surprise us? It does. Oh, oh it, it does. It does surprise us. I mean, we go, oh my goodness. Can you, do you see what they're doing to Christians nowadays? And we get furious. They did it to him first. Of course they're going to do it to us. We're not of the world. You, you see what they're taking out of schools? Do you see what they're... Yes, I see that. It's what he said. The world will hate believers. It's going to get worse. That's exactly what he said. Sometimes we're shocked. Oh my goodness, what they're doing to Christians. What'd they do to our Lord? They'll do to us. What they did to him. He says, we're 
aliens. It's almost like believers in Christ have been from another world and sat down on planet Earth. We're not of this world. We're aliens here because we have a different Lord. We have a different value system. We go by the book, and yes, we're criticized for it. That's okay because I'm more like them than I am him. I've got a problem. So because the world hates me, okay, and hates you, be surprised, shocked. That's what he said here. It's going to happen. Verse 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Folks, the reason lost people act lost is because they don't know God. The reason laws are passed that are unbiblical, they don't know God. That's what he says. They don't know me. That's why, that's why the persecution comes. They don't know me. And we can't expect the lost world to act saved. They're lost. Verse 21, by all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they did not know him who sent me. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. So there are some people, some denominations that say, I, I love God. I just don't like Jesus. It doesn't work that way. He says, you either accept me or reject me. Verse 24, if I had not done among you the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He's quoting Psalms. Finally, verse 26. When the helper, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So as we close, picture Jesus trying as a follower of his. You're confused. You don't know what he means by all this death talk. And he's trying to set your heart at ease saying, you need to love God with all your heart. You can't do anything outside of me you need to love each other, and the world's going to hate you. Don't let, it, don't let it fool you. Don't let it surprise you. And, folks, when you know those things and abide in him, you can have the joy that he talked about regardless of what goes on around you. Now, we'll pick up next uh, week, chapter 16. Jesus continues the teaching. It gets more interesting. Interesting or not, it gets even more interesting in chapter 16. Questions or comments before we close very quickly? All right, good to see you tonight, and uh, we'll pick back up next week and uh, next Wednesday. Now, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word tonight. I, I thank you for the truth that you've taught us. God, help every one of us here, everyone watching by live stream, to abide in you this week. Not go off on our own, but sojourn where you are. Spend time with you. Bear fruit the way that we should. Love the way that we should. Keep your commandments. 
and not be a part of the world around us. God, help us to follow what you've told us tonight. We love you and we thank you. Help us to keep your commandments in so doing. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you on Sunday.